ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his, his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on you. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there, and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Curious, tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town be wiped from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. There it is again. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom, for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. That's quite a responsibility, isn't that? Jesus is saying that whoever listens to us is listening to him. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. In other words, God. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So over the last 10 days or so, I've been reflecting on the mission of the church, which is what we're talking about today in part two. And it's occurred to me that the mission of the church can be expressed in many, many different ways. And if I was to spend time telling you all the different ways that the mission of the church is expressed, it would take an awfully long time. So I got to thinking that maybe the best way to approach this would be to give you a very concise statement about the mission of the church. And then by explaining that and understanding it, you will start to grasp what the character of that mission is, what is it characterized by, and then also the kind of things that you can do as an individual and that we can do as a church to participate in the mission of the church. So in a nutshell, every disciple in the church is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Now you're probably looking at that, if you're anything like I am or I was, Maybe if you, you haven't been part of this journey, this faith journey for a long time, and you're thinking, well, that might as well be written in hieroglyphics, because I've got no idea what that word gospel means. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or it could even be a Mandarin. I mean, what, what is the kingdom of God, and how do we proclaim the kingdom of God? We all live in a democracy, don't we? There are very few kingdoms left in the world. What's this whole thing of the kingdom of God? And so we're going to reflect on that this morning. 
Remember that Craig told us last week that the English word mission comes from the Latin word which means to send. So our mission is that we have been sent to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. The first thing that we would like to reflect on this morning is that all are sent. Now we need to find a biblical basis for this because I can stand up here and claim that every one of you is sent to proclaim the gospel and the, and the kingdom of God. But is that what Jesus told us? Is that what the Bible says? Now if you think about the first eight chapters of Luke, they're all essentially about the character of Jesus Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? Was he God? Was there something special about him? But then at chapter 9, there's a transition where Luke starts to tell us what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so right at the start of that transition, chapter 9, verse 1, um, he says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So, what do we learn from that? The first thing that we learn is that when we are disciples of Jesus, we are called radically in to a relationship of intimacy with God. We're called into a place of blessing with God. But it doesn't end there. Once we have been called in, we're then rooted out in a sense. We are sent out. And if you look at any of the famous heroes of the faith in the Bible, and thinking, for example, of Moses, you know, the Bible says that Moses used to talk to God face to face. He was in a place of tremendous intimacy with God, but he was also sent out. He was sent, go and set my people free. Go and release my people from slavery. If you think of Elijah, Elijah had a, a, a tremendously intimate time with God. Remember that time when God said that he had unclean lips and then sent um, a coal to go and burn his lips to purify them. And from that place of intimacy, he was then sent out. So we also, as disciples, are sent people. And it's because Jesus was sent by God on a mission, and we are Christ followers, that we're also sent on a mission. Can you see that? Um, Jesus, it says in, in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is what Jesus prayed in, in, in John, I can't remember which chapter it is now, I just know it's verse 18, so there's a clue. <laughs> but he said, Jesus was praying to God and he says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And then Craig reminded us of another verse last week. He referred to John 3, 16 and 17, where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So the big idea here is that Jesus was sent on a mission by God, and he now sends us on a mission by God as well. But you might say, well, that's, that's all very well. You talked about John, uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 1, where Jesus sent out the 12. You might say, well, yeah, that's the 12 disciples. They were the ones who were sent out on the special mission. And the Great Commission that Craig talked about last week, well, Jesus was talking to the disciples. Was he really talking to us? 
I mean, those guys had spent three years in this very, very special Bible college, if you like, with the Lord Jesus Christ. I haven't experienced that. Well, you might say, well, that's okay for the professionals. You've been trained, Ian, so you're the one who goes to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And that's where we get to today's passage and the significance of that. Just flip over to, to chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them. Now, why would Jesus have sent out 72 people? What's the significance of that number? Well, at the time, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures were most available to people in a translation that was in Greek. It was called the Septuagint. So most people wouldn't have been reading the, the scriptures in Hebrew, um, but they would have been reading them in the Septuagint, which was in Greek. And in uh, Genesis chapter 10 of the Septuagint, you will find what is called the Table of the Nations, a list of all the nations on the face of the earth. Do you know how many nations were listed there? 72. So this is Jesus' way of saying that everybody on the face of the earth who becomes a disciple of his, doesn't matter which nation they come from, is a sent person. They are sent out. So I hope that you can see that every disciple of Jesus, every one of us, is a sent person. But before we move on to the next part of the proposition which I gave earlier, um, which, which has to do with what we, what, what we actually do on the mission, I'd like to extract a very crucial defining characteristic. Now this is very important because whenever we do things, we need to make sure that the way we do them are characterized by the way that God wants us to be, do, to be doing them. And in John 3.16, which Craig mentioned again last week, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus' mission flowed from God's love. So God's mission for the church begins in God's heart of love. In the beginning, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, in an eternal community of love, said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So right at that point, God decided to expand his community of love and to include us in it. But unfortunately, mankind rebelled and the community of love <coughs> broke down. But God still wanted to expand his community of love. He wanted to have a family. He wanted to have sons and daughters. Can you believe that God actually wanted you to be his son or his daughter? And so he sent Jesus back to bring people into that community of love. And Jesus made it possible through his death and resurrection. And he sends us, folks, to do the same thing. Jesus is no longer on earth. We are here as, rep as his representatives. So our mission starts in the heart of God, and it's God's mission, and it's a mission of love. So everything that we do, folks, and we need to start right at the basics here, everything that we do on the mission of the church needs to be characterized by love. And right back at the beginning, the disciples had a problem with this. Look at what the 72 said. The 72 returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And then Jesus replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the 72 were rejoicing in their spiritual power. But Jesus reminds them that that authority came from him because he's God. How do we know that he was claiming to be God at that point? Well, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, what he's saying was, in the past, even before the world was created, when Satan fell, I was there. I was God. The reason why you have this power over demons and so on is because I'm God and I've given it to you. Now, in those days, he, he gives them something different to rejoice in. And I think we need to be careful of this as well. In those days, when, when paper was hugely expensive and rare, and there was no such thing as the internet or printing presses, it was a really big deal to have your name in print. I can almost guarantee that every one of you, if you went onto the internet and did a Google search for your name, you'd probably get a hit on the internet. Everybody's got their name in print. But in those days, only significant, important people had their name in print. And he's saying, you should be rejoicing in the fact that your name is written in heaven. And that means, then, that our motivation for the mission of God is not to be significant or important, because we already are significant and important. Our names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Instead, our motivation should be love. For God so loved the world. Of course, Paul goes on to say, we all know this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He goes on to talk about prophecy. He says even, he, he gets actions into the mix. He says, even if I surrender my body to the flames so that I can feed people, it counts for nothing if I don't have love. So, what have we learned so far? Everyone is on a mission. All are set. And the mission needs to be characterized and motivated by love. You know, we don't, we don't do all of these different things to try and earn something from God, to try and boost our significance and our self-worth. We do it from love, because our self-worth comes from the fact that our names are written in the book of life. So, next thing. We are to proclaim the gospel. Now, this word is not necessarily used in Luke chapter 10, but Jesus used it on many occasions. And also, the apostles used it as well, and I'll just give you two examples. Um, this was before Jesus left to go back to heaven. He said there in verse 15, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And then, also in Matthew 24, verse 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What is this gospel? What does it mean? It's a strange word, isn't it? We are to preach the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to teach the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, that word was chosen by Jesus in the early church to describe the message that we are to proclaim. But at the time, that word gospel had a very specific meaning. 
The gospel was news of an objective, in other words, something that you could observe, not something that you could feel, an objective, history-changing event that altered everyone's situation and that everyone needed to respond to. For example, there's a historic document written in the Greek at the time of Jesus that goes like this. It says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. Even what? Gospel of Caesar Augustus? Well, it was the declaration that Augustus had ascended the throne and it was sent out. Heralds took it everywhere and they declared the gospel to everyone. It was the announcement of a, a major history-changing event that affected everybody. You couldn't have said, well, he might be your emperor, but he's not my emperor. If you were part of the Roman Empire, you had to face up to it. You were now a subject of Caesar Augustus. And even if you weren't part of the Roman Empire, you would also have to deal with the fact that Caesar Augustus was now the emperor. It was an objective, life-changing event, the news of it. Another example, and perhaps this is an even more famous example. In AD 490, the Battle of Marathon, the Persians had invaded Greece, and a very small um, Greek army went out from Athens and engaged the Persian army on the plains of Marathon. This is about 22 and a half miles away from Athens. Everybody expected the Greek army to, to lose the battle. But in actual fact, they won the battle. And so now they needed to get the news of that life-changing historical event back to Athens in order to prevent looting in the city, people panicking, all manner of things could have gone wrong, all manner of chaos. So they decided to send one runner back from the plains of Marathon. And that 22 and a half miles is now the distance that you run in a marathon today, in a modern marathon. And he ran all the way back. And when he entered the city gates, he shouted out, Rejoice, we have triumphed. That was his gospel. Rejoice, we have triumphed. And then as the story goes, he dropped dead from exhaustion. <laughs> but he'd done his job. So when Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation, he's commanding us to spread the news of an objective, history-changing event that transforms everyone's situation and that everybody needs to respond to. What is that event? It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. So our mission is to proclaim the gospel, now listen to this, by both word and action. Let's consider word first of all. People need to be told about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to explain why that life-changing event needed to happen. We need to explain the implications of it. And people need to hear it. This is what Paul said. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Saying, this is what happened. Jesus came, he was sent from God, he died, he was resurrected. Why did he do that? Why was it necessary? What are the implications of this for you today, 2,000 years later? People need to hear the gospel. And they don't need to hear it just once. They need to hear it often. 
and they need to hear it at key times in their lives. And this brings me now to the second part of proclaiming the gospel through action. Often the opportunity to proclaim the gospel by word will arise when we have been proclaiming it by action first. Folks, we need to be authentic people. People need to see the change in us. Commentators on Luke believe that it's hugely significant that straight after sending out the 72 on a mission, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why did he do that? Well, Jesus is telling us that one of the most effective ways we can proclaim the gospel is by being the best possible neighbor that we can. You want to start proclaiming the gospel today? Be an excellent neighbor. Jesus, before he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. There's the love again, characterized by love. And with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Once again, love is a characteristic of the mission. And the mind-blowing thing is that not only has God sent you, but he has prepared specific things for you to do. Ephesians 2 verse 10, he says that he has a life of good work prepared in advance for you to do. So each person here has got a different socioeconomic background, a different upbringing, um, a different experience of God. And as Tim Keller puts it, there are certain hands out there in the world that only you can hold. There are certain wounds that only you can wind up. And so you need to be asking the Lord Jesus, there's so many people around me. And remember, a neighbor is a person who's in need, who has a need that you can fulfill. Just start asking the Lord, what need can I fulfill? How can I be an excellent neighbor? What work have you prepared for me to do this week? I watched a lovely little video about a man who was talking about how sometimes God taps him on the shoulder. And if you saw this, it was going around on WhatsApp. And you just felt God tap him on the shoulder one day and, and say that he should go across to a lady who was having, um, having tea with uh, her daughter and just say to her, you know what, you're just really looking beautiful today. An elderly lady, really looking beautiful. And so he went and did it. And she said to him, you know, Today I'm remembering the first anniversary of my husband's death and that's exactly the sort of thing that he would have said to me. This is what it means to be a neighbor. <laughs> and often it's not a big thing. We just listen out for those little taps. So before we move on to the second aspect now, which is proclaiming the kingdom of God, I'd like to just take a moment to talk about another characteristic of our mission, and that's reconciliation. The main implication of the gospel is that we have become rebels, we have become enemies of God, and through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's possible for us to now be reconciled to God. We can now go back into an intimate relationship with God. And so our mission is always to be marked and characterized by forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's a tremendous statement to the world around us when what we do is characterized by forgiveness and reconciliation. People need to see something amongst us that is different. People need to see the races relating in a different way in the church 
to the way that they do outside in the world. People need to see people in the church dealing with hurt and anger and bitterness in a different way. We need to be working for reconciliation. What does it say in, in the Beatitudes? It says, blessed are the peacemakers. <laughs> so that's part of our mission, is working for peace, working for reconciliation. So, just to summarize where we've got so far, every one of us is on a mission from God, and the mission is to be characterized by love and reconciliation. And we're to carry out the mission by proclaiming the gospel. People need to be told about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we must explain why that life-changing event needed to happen. And we must also explain and live out the implications of it. So that's proclaiming the gospel. Now what about to proclaim the kingdom? Let's go back to the passage there in verse in chapter 10, verse 8. It says, When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's a strange thing to say, isn't it? What does that mean? The kingdom of God has come near to you. When he sent out the twelve, he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. What's all this about the kingdom of God? What does it mean to proclaim the kingdom of God? Well, there are two kingdoms on earth. There's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. Paul talks about it here, but it's mentioned in many other places. God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So there's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And there are only two kinds of citizens in the world. Those who belong to the kingdom of darkness and those who belong to the kingdom of light. Of light. And a kingdom has got four basic elements to it. A king, a territory that it occupies, subjects, members within that territory, and then laws through which the will of the ruler is exercised. So at present, God's kingly rule has been established in every believer. We are the subjects of the kingdom of life. And those that believe and follow Christ have God ruling in their hearts. We follow his laws because those laws express what he wants, his will and his desire. And in a sense, since the subjects of both the kingdoms of light and the kingdom of darkness live mixed up amongst each other, there isn't a clearly demarcated territory where the kingdom of light is. The thing is, there isn't yet. One day, the kingdom of the world, this is in Revelation, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And this is going to happen when Christ comes for a second time. Now, the significant thing, and I hope you'll get this, is that that future reality where the whole of the world will be the kingdom of God and Jesus will come and rule keeps breaking in 
to our present, not yet, reality. In other words, in the, name, in the words of Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near. So, for example, when you and I establish a local church community that lives according to God's laws, then the kingdom comes near to those who can observe it and see something different. When we reveal God's love and character, we provide like a sort of a signpost. And then the kingdom comes near because they glimpse something different, which gives them the opportunity to explore and either accept or reject what that witness points to, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about his death and resurrection and the implications of that. So just to take um, Trisha's example, uh, I was chatting to Ben about what it's like to be in prison, and he says one of the most difficult things about being in prison is you're constantly being sent the message that you are worth nothing, that nobody cares about you, it would actually be better if you were dead. And so the way that that's communicated to the prisoners, whether it's intentional or not, is that they aren't given shoes to wear. When they're visiting, some, when someone comes to visit, they, they are put in shackles. <laughs> How's that person going to escape? But they're put in shackles because the message is, you are a prisoner. Um, and there's so many things, and you, and you just look at it and you think, the kingdom of the earth, society is communicating to these people that you mean nothing. We don't care for you. We don't love you. But now, when someone like Trish comes along and organizes that those guys can get a pair of shoes, the kingdom of God comes near. Because it is a proclamation of the fact that there is a different kingdom that rules on this earth. One day it's going to rule everything. There's a different kingdom. There's a kingdom where even if you've done something wrong, the way you are punished brings restitution. And so it's declaring to them the kingdom of God has come near. And as we do that, in whatever different way we do it, whether it's binding up somebody's wounds, or um, arranging for them to get medical care, or praying for their healing and they receive a miraculous healing, the future aspect of the kingdom of God breaks in. And they, that person realizes, well, well, they may not realize, but it was a statement that the kingdom of God has come near. And so I think of, of Tianson Deirdre in Shibutu, They've gone there to, to help young people have a hope in the future. And so when they train a young guy or a young woman to either to do sewing or to maintain bicycles so that they've got a bit of a hope in the future, they're, they're busy saying, the kingdom of God is coming near. We are part of a kingdom where people are valued, where people are given a hope and a future. The kingdom of God has come near. They proclaim the kingdom of God. And then also at the same time, they're proclaiming the gospel. And they're saying, you know, whether you accept this or not, Jesus died 2,000 years ago so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you can become a part of this kingdom of God. Yeah. It's come near, are you going to become a part of it or not? And I believe that many of the people that, um, that Jesus prayed for, because Jesus prayed for people who didn't believe in the kingdom of God to be healed. The 72 did the same thing. They drove out demons, whatever it was. And we, we are called to do the same things. And some of the people that we pray for to be miraculously healed, the kingdom of God might come near to them, but they might not choose to accept the gospel. They might not become sons and daughters of the king. But our job is to go out there and bring the kingdom of God near to them. So that's why we, 
when you take this principle now, you begin to realize that there is a myriad of opportunities for you to be proclaiming the kingdom of God and at the same time declaring the gospel, that life-changing event. So I'd like to close by reading that statement. And this is not so much what the mission is, it's more the character of the mission. Mission is the reconciling, we've talked about that, haven't we? And transforming action of God. Transformation is another characteristic of the gospel. That's why we want to be a transformational church. When you've been changed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, you've been transformed. And people will see that transformation. I remember just recently um, thinking about a friend of mine who about five years ago, he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Before then, he was a different man. We'd be, we'd keep, we'd keep out of his way at rugby matches when we, because our kids both played um, rugby together because he was just an unpleasant person to be around. But almost from one day to the next, he changed. Transformation. The kingdom of God has come near. Some of his friends who are still non-believers, the kingdom of God came near to them when they saw that miraculous transformation. Some of them haven't responded to it, and others have through this person. So mission is the reconciling and transforming action of God, flowing from a community of love, found in the Trinity, found in the heart of God, and made known to all humanity in the person of Christ, but then, of course, we're included in that and entrusted to the faithful action and witness of the people of God who, in the power of the Spirit, are a sign, foretaste, and instrument of that future reign of God, the Kingdom of God. So I'd like you to take that down, reflect on it, meditate on it, start asking God what you can do this week be a good neighbor and remember that part of that proclamation is, is the action being a good neighbor loving but it's also finding some way to point to Jesus and to tell people about Jesus should we pray Father God we thank you for this mission we thank you that it is such wonderful news and that we are and um, we have become members of an eternal kingdom there is a kingdom that cannot be shaken we just think of that picture in Daniel where um, the kingdom of God was first of all seen as a small rock which um, came and smashed the kingdoms of the earth and then it got bigger and bigger until it was a mountain that filled the whole earth. We thank you that we're part of that kingdom. And that one day when you return Jesus Christ, you will be the king and you will reign here amongst us on earth in the new heaven and the new earth. We so look forward to that. But we recognize this very weighty mission that you have sent us on, every one of us, to proclaim the gospel, that life-changing event, to explain the implications of it to people, and also to demonstrate what the kingdom of God is like, to proclaim the kingdom of God. We pray that you would, well, we know that you've given it to us, Jesus, you said, I have given you power to proclaim to do all of these things, to make disciples, to cast out demons, to heal, whatever it is, Father, you've given us the power to do it. And we're looking forward to seeing what you're going to do with us this week. Help us to be open to those little taps on the shoulder. Help us to be obedient. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.